nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, a farmer knows that long-term production of food and fiber on a piece of land requires staying in some kind of balance. If you take something away, you have to put something back to build up the soil. But what happens if the farmer is harvesting energy, and not from private land, but from a shared resource like the ocean? What does long-term balance look like then? We're glad to have some folks in the studio, and those uh, uh, we'll be talking with by phone a little later, um, who can help us with that topic. They're uh, all involved in something called the Sustainability Solutions Initiative at the University of Maine. Um, and Today, we're going to be talking about how that project intersects with uh, tidal energy, um, one of the new um, emerging alternative energy forms that uh, Maine is looking at. And we're glad to welcome back uh, Gail Zidluski, who's with the University of Maine's School of Marine Sciences. Gail, you were with us about five years ago talking about the Lower Penobscot River, I believe. Yeah, that was fun. Great. Well, <laughs> glad that you could be back with us. And uh, you've brought with us, uh, with you, Teresa Johnson. Uh, Teresa is also in the University of Maine School of Marine Sciences, and uh, she would be classified more as a social scientist. Welcome to you, Teresa. Glad you could be with us. Um, uh, Gail, we'll start a little bit with you and get a little bit of your background, how you got started in this world of science and, and, and how it applies in this particular uh, project. Sure. So I am a marine scientist in the School of Marine Sciences. I particularly study fish and fish biology. Um, and it, as this relates to tidal power, what happened about, oh gosh, three or four years ago is an engineer of all people came to me and said, you know, we really need to think about tidal power in terms of its impacts on fish. Um, and so it was quite insightful from, from that perspective that an engineer was thinking, you know, beyond just the turbine and how to harness the energy. And so a group of scientists got together um, at, from marine sciences and various different aspects of, in the University of Maine system, including Maine Maritime Academy, um, to talk about not only turbines themselves, but how fish may be impacted by them, and also the oceanography that's associated. So how much energy is there out there um, that can be harnessed from the tide? So a group of very cross-disciplinary folks got together to start talking about this, which starts into your whole, how do you balance things? So how do we know how much energy there is? How can we harness it? And how might it impact the environment? And so I was in, um, brought into the mix in terms of thinking about that. And 
fortunately, we were able to identify or had funding from the Department of Energy to start thinking about this question. And we formed a group called the Maine Tidal Power Initiative. And we've been, from the very get-go, cognizant of the oceanography, engineering, and um, environment um, as three peers or three parts of what we need to consider as tidal power development move forward in Maine. And then shortly along that whole that path, we were very aware. <laughs> and uh, one of the companies that we're working with, and we'll talk with later, Ocean Renewable Power Company, was very aware of the community aspects and the people who needed to be engaged. And that's when we started talking with Teresa and roped her into <laughs> thinking about this from a social science perspective and how do we be how are we sure that the local environment as it engages people um, are aware of the information that we're collecting and how can we communicate that to them and how can they use it to make um, really good decisions about moving tidal power development forward in Maine. Mm. And, and it sounds like, sounds like it's not just the, the information that the company wants them to hear, but you're providing some additional information from the science perspective. That's right. Right. Mm -hmm. Teresa, when I first met you, you were a graduate student, and now you're a professor at the University of Maine. Squeeze right into that microphone. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get started with this? You're, a, uh, you're from Maine. Um, how did you get interested in kind of social sciences? Yeah, I um, I grew up in Maine, like I, like you said, on the coast of Maine, from fishing community. Um, I've long uh, been interested in the, the social aspects because you you see these communities change, you see how they've impacted by changes in the environment and changes in regulations and things like that. So I've always um, been really interested in that aspect. Um, also, the environmental aspect in terms of um, my work is very interdisciplinary. I, I you know my uh, my perspective is that you really can't separate the social and the environmental, so you kind of, you need to do both, right? Mm -hmm. So very long interested in um, understanding those interactions between the, the environment and, and people. Um, and so um, I, I got my degree, like you said, and I eventually came back here. And so I'm one of the few social scientists in the School of Marine Sciences at the University of Maine. And um, my expertise is in fisheries, uh, marine fisheries, fisheries management, um, particularly fishing communities and how those intersect. Um, I'm very interested in participatory approaches, so I, is, you know, I think it's really important and interesting from an academic perspective um, how you engage fishermen, uh, community members in uh, management decisions, and also the science. So how, how do you uh, tap into local knowledge also? So I'm really, um, and that's where um, I became well, I guess got roped into it a little bit by Gail, not, not, not exactly, but um, so I was really excited uh, when they uh, expressed interest in, in looking at the social aspects of, the, of tidal, power and, uh, tidal power because often it's not on the top of people's priorities. So it was really um, exciting to, to see this group of scientists that recognize the importance of that element because um, I think um, in a lot of places that part uh, is considered later. and and to the detriment of the project. So. Right. So I can imagine, um, Gail, when you're doing research, you're kind of um, looking at critters that live under the ocean, and as you said, you're looking at currents and those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Uh, Teresa, how do you get started talking with the community about these kinds of things, in particular in Eastport and, and mm -hmm. tidal energy? So we got started by um, tapping into local experts, local um, folks that are engaged in the community as sort of a, a starting point. Um, we started with um, the Cobbs, Cobbs Cook Bay Resource Center, um, as well as the local uh, Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension uh, 
marine agent, yeah. marine agent, <laughs> right, right. Um, because they they live there, they know their, you know, they know the community, um, they know the issues. So that's a a, a a great starting point. Is sort of, uh, you know, so we we started there with people that we know we mm-hmm. knew and talked to them about what's what are what's the best way to um, start getting involved in the community and you know where do we start? So we kind of start with them. Mm. And I suppose you're asking them um, when you get to talk with people in the community, you're asking them about both hopes and concerns. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what were some of the early responses when you began to ask those questions? What were, what were people hoping for when they looked at tidal energy, and what were some of their concerns? There was um, so that's an interesting. Um, on one hand, uh, you know the you know the particular area of Cobscook Bay, very very interested in uh, new economic opportunities, right? So they were very uh, interested to know what what are some of the benefits that that tidal power could provide to the community. Um, but then they were also concerned about what are the po- possible environmental impacts that that tidal power may have in the community, which may affect the existing jobs, right? So, so jobs is an important uh, concern that sort of underlies a lot of the concerns there. And they wanted to know what's going on, like what you know, what what are we, what what kind of uh, research questions are we we looking into? Um, so, so they're interested both in the research and in in what's happening in the in the tidal um, energy field. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And Gail, what what were what were your starting points? Um, how did you get started in your team of scientists? So, one of the first things we thought of because this um, tidal energy was treated as a hydroelectric power um, was the concern of not thinking of these turbines as dams. Because um, from a fish perspective, when a fish encounters a turbine at a dam, they're forced through that turbine. And so we thought it was a unique opportunity to think about these open turbines in a big and a large bay and how that might be different um, compared to a dam. And, and really we were thinking and we sat down with ORPC and the state and federal regulators so that everybody kind of renewed their mindset on how to consider um, how fish might interact with these devices and um, really had to think about a different design than trying to shoot fish through a turbine and see what the impacts were. Which <laughs> so sounds really, messy. Right. So really <laughs> we were excited to think about um, how fish might be avoiding these turbines or if there is an opportunity to avoid them. So um, as you know, and we'll probably get to, um, there isn't a device in the water yet. So we've done um, nearly three years of baseline um, collecting collecting of information um, to understand where fish are in the water column because the tidal devices will be put at specific points in the water column. So we wanted to know if um, if it was placed in a certain part of the water column, would fish be there? When would they be there? How often would they be there? So that's the kind of data we've been collecting so far is specific to the, the project site, but also we've been collecting large-scale information about what fish are in Cobscook Bay there's an amazing amount of information about um, the hydrodynamics or the water flow through Cobscook Bay and the invertebrates in Cobscook Bay, but very, very little known about fin fish. So we needed to also collect some basic information about what fish were in the bay as well. Mm. Well, let's get some. Let's step back a little bit and kind of get the context for um, the Sustainability Solutions Initiative. And now we've got an interview. Um, I think we've got an interview um, with David Hart. Um, we're going to go with that interview with David Hart, um, um, and he's kind of the director of, of the Sustainability Solutions Initiative. He's at the Senator George J. Mitchell Center for Environmental Watershed Research, and, and we'll hear from him now.
Uh, David, first, a little background on yourself. Um, you're a scientist. Um, what, what area of science have you practiced in? Well, I'm an environmental scientist, Ron, and uh, I'm particularly fond of water, and so I've studied rivers m most of my life, um, and watersheds, and how to understand, protect, and restore watersheds in a lot of parts of the U.S. and in some cases around the world. That no notion of watershed is, is not new, but um, it's a, a way of connecting things, isn't it? It sure is. It's really a connection between people and place and process. And my training is a little bit about the wet part of that, but I mean the people are just as important. The forest is important. How we deal with the land is obviously connected to the water. So it's a kind of a systems problem that we face in many parts of our world today. So did that, um, was that part of your background that led you to think about and you and others create a sustainability solutions process? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I learned in about 30 years of work is that although environmental science, which was my area, was important for understanding the problems, it wasn't enough to know that to help solve the problems. At the end of the day, as complicated as, say, environmental systems are, sort of ecosystems with their species and their chemistry and their physical processes, it's really the human dimensions of the problem that are the challenging ones. So I was interested in finding a lot of wonderful colleagues who had all that other expertise and kind of working as a team to help solve problems. And what's, what's the uh, connection at the University of Maine? How are you kind of based here? Right, so I'm the director of the Mitchell Center, which is a wonderful uh, place to hang out, uh, but I'm also um, part of this Sustainability Solutions Initiative, which has brought together over 50 faculty from virtually every part of the campus. Uh, every kind of expertise, heck, we've got law professors and economists, anthropologists, engineers, you name it. They've all come together with a deep belief that we want to figure out how to help solve societal problems. Uh, we want to make a bigger difference. And that's really bringing the university back, I think, to its roots, isn't it, um, in terms of the land-grant yeah, concept? Yeah, this is really just taking the land-grant ethos that's been around for so long and saying, what does that look like in the 21st century? So we're standing on the shoulders of giants. In other words, land-grant, uh, then uh, cooperative extension, which you know well, C-grant, and lots of faculty who were already doing this. We just tried to keep doing it, grow it. And uh, I know in my own background with Cooperative Extension, it was always an invitation out to come play <laughs> in the community. Yeah, so for, for us, this is, Maine is such a wonderful place to do this kind of work. Uh, the richness of the communities, the character of the communities, the history of the communities. We do our work in a, in a fun way, in the sense that we, we try to not start by thinking about these needs ourselves. We go out into the communities, we talk to the people that live there, breathe there, work there, and sort of say, what kind of challenges are you facing here? What kind of future are you trying to create? And what will it take to get from here to there? And then we ask, is there some way we can help? And I suppose if they said, hey, we don't need any help, we're fine, we'd say, good, more power to you. On the other hand, if they said, here's some problems we haven't figured out and we could use a hand, that's kind of how SSI works. So what kinds of problems are the communities telling you about and what kinds of solutions might be emerging through this connection between the university science and, and research and the community issues? Right, so I think the, the issues are as diverse as, as, as Maine is. Um, 
you go up to Eastport, there's uh, where this show is featuring our work. Uh, wonderful, exciting things about that community. Their hopes for the future in terms of energy security, everybody's worried about energy, right? But they're doing something really special that takes advantage of local circumstances. These huge tides in the, that part of the Bay of Fundy, well, that's, that, they're farther ahead, to my knowledge, than anyone in North America learning how to harvest the tides to provide electricity, but to do so in a way that works for the community, that works for the fishing community, that works for, for creating jobs, and works for what, what those communities, how they want to see themselves. On the other hand, we have a wonderful project led by Darren Ranko uh, and working with Wabanaki communities that has a totally different look and feel there. Uh, their whole way of life and culture is closely tied to the brown ash and to basket making. Unfortunately, there's an invasive beetle on its way here. It's killed tens of millions of ash trees in the Midwest. If and when it arrives here, it'll be tough. And so can we prevent it from arriving? And if we can't, can we be better prepared, have contingency plans that allow Wabanaki people to live the way they've lived for thousands of years? Uh, that's a big challenge where they've asked for our help and it's an exciting partnership. Uh, we have uh, projects that deal with how town planning works. I mean, so many decisions about the future of, made, uh, future of Maine are made in the town, in town meetings. Well, all towns want more than one thing. They want economic development. People need jobs. Most people that I know in Maine care about the environment. They go hiking, they go fishing, they go paddling, uh, they go hunting. and. All of that has to be balanced somehow. So we have projects that are trying to help towns develop better ways of balancing their desire to grow economically and to protect their social and environmental character, their culture. Um, so the look and feel of these projects is really diverse. I think that's one of the special things, and it's one of the things I'm most excited by. So it must take um, not only kind of the intellectual curiosity to lead people out into the community, but some funding as well. How, how is all yeah. this kind of put together? Well, the funny thing is, Ron, I think I was on your show uh, with Gail Zaleski about five years ago when we just had the very little gleaming uh, early ideas of, of this project, and we were doing it on a shoestring, and lo and behold, somewhere along the way, uh, we were awarded a very large grant from the National Science Foundation, the NSF EPSCoR program, a $20 million grant that has allowed us to fund over 100 faculty, several hundred graduate and undergraduate students, uh, funding for uh, partner work, and not just at the University of Maine, it is being led by the Mitchell Center here at UMaine, but uh, USM is a full partner in this project. And I believe the total number of higher ed institutions in the state that are participating now with funding from us is 11 different institutions. Most of the institutions of higher ed are doing a version of this down at Colby, working in the Belgrades, down at Bowdoin, working on the Androscoggin and Kennebec and Mary Meeting Bay, up in Presque Isle, working on energy issues, or Fort Kent, different kinds of energy issues, different projects in different places, all bringing universities together with their communities to create a better future. Just one more question. When, when this funding is over, yeah. what's the base? What, what are you left with um, as a kind of a result of this particular phase? Well, first off, um, whoever came up with the name Sustainability Solutions Initiative must have been awfully optimistic if they thought they were going to solve all the problems with a five-year grant. 
But that sense of hopefulness, frankly, is part of what SSI is about. We don't expect that all of these problems are going to be solved, signed, sealed, and delivered at the end of this grant, which ends in 2014. But we do think we're changing, we're growing our capacity to work together to solve problems. We know that there are going to be disagreements along the way. Every person you talk to has a somewhat different view of what we want in the future. We're going to have to find common ground on this, just like your radio station seeks common ground among its listeners. SSI has that kind of ethos. Let's work together for the long haul to create the world we want to live in, right here in our own towns, in the whole state, and let's let the lessons we learned in Maine spread far and wide. Great. That was David Hart. David is the director of the Senator George J. Mitchell Center for Environmental and Watershed Research at the University of Maine. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning as we consider how to engage communities around tidal energy. In the studio with us, we have Teresa Johnson and Gail Zidluski, who are both with the School of Marine Sciences. Um, and in a short while, we'll talk with John Furland of Ocean Renewable Power Company. Um, first, I'd ask if uh, either Teresa or Gail have anything that they want to add to David's explanation. How do you see this all kind of fitting together? Any 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 thoughts? This this notion of connecting science and communities. Uh, yeah, you know, you've been doing this yeah. in all of your life, but this is. I think yeah, that's a great point, and I think that your last question to David was how to, how to move things, keep things moving forward, and I think it's more SSI has enabled the process. So to get people at the university talking with one another as well as the community, so it's really an, enabled something that. I think we'll move forward. And I think in some of the surveys we've done among the faculty who are involved, they genuinely want to stay involved in that type of research. So it, it's quite a rewarding process. And I think that, that just that momentum is going to be helpful in maintaining connections to the communities. And Teresa, your work in what I call the social sciences, you have to be involved in the community. You don't have any laboratory except the community. Right, right. And I think one of the other aspect of it is that these, you know, these problems are dynamic, right? These these communities are changing. The problems are changing. So it's not like uh, we have, you know, we can, well, you know. We'll get it done. Yeah, it'll be like, oh, we're all done. We can you know, wash our hands and move on. Right. Um, you know, we're investing in these communities. We're investing our time and our, you know, resources and, and, and like Gail said, the process of, of uh, engagement. Seems like you're also building relationships, um, so that if you have another question in Cobbscook Bay, you've already got a network of people, um, both from the, the water side and the community side, that you can go to and say, "How do we start?" Yeah, that's right. right. That's that's really important. Right. Yeah. So as you um, think about um, so, some of the the, the biological uh, work, um, you you said you were looking at at uh, fish. What were you finding um, in terms of the the kinds of fin fish who were swimming in in Cobbscook Bay? Oh, so we've we've definitely been um, collecting different species, and and interestingly, the the fishermen were quite interested last year when we actually caught some haddock in outer Cobbscook Bay, which hasn't been seen in a while. Admittedly, they were juvenile, so we haven't seen any commercial size fish. But we've also collected uh, winter flounder, which is what a lot of people expected. But interestingly, the work that Teresa and I have been doing, we've 
um, through that fin fish work. Before we started that work, we went to the community. We went to the fishermen because there was no baseline information, and we just asked them, you know, how can we best collect this information? And then, so they gave us a lot of input, what we should be looking for, what where we might find things, and and we've brought that information back to them. So what we found, and they've, so we're engaging in this iterative process, so they gain from the research that we've been doing as well as we're gaining from them for sure. Mm. This kind of back and forth process um, makes a lot of sense to me. How have, how have you found it, Teresa, this back and forth of, of asking the questions, going out and doing some work and bringing it back? Yeah, I, I, I think it's wonderful. I think it's really the right way to do it, you know, that you have this two-way dialogue. Um, you know, that's the whole um, essence of sustainability science, I think, is is making those connections between the community and the research and making sure that, you know, as researchers, we're asking the right questions. And, you know, and part of our work in the social aspects is to find out how does the community want to engage with us? How do they want the information given back to them? So we've been um, building on the initial findings that we did uh, early on in the project. They, for example, they liked, uh, they suggested that we use the Kodi Tides, you know, so we've made sure to uh, put our work there. They liked uh, this idea of having community meetings. So as Gail said, we followed that recommendation and we had these community meetings. And I think I think that's really working. And I think, um, you know, like you said, building relationships and and, um, and I think our project's better for it. Mm. Well, let's go now to um, somebody who can talk more specifically about um, ocean renewable power companies' um, hopes to um, establish and kind of prove um, the, the wisdom of tidal power. And that's uh, John Furland with Ocean Renewable Power. Uh, welcome to Talk of the Towns, John. Uh, Ron, thank you very much, and, and good morning to everybody else uh, who's there as well. Great. Well, um, as we as we think about the, the state of Maine and, and the interest in alternative energy, where does tidal power uh, fit into this mix? Well, it fits in very strongly from a couple of standpoints. One is, uh, you know, it can probably provide uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of, of the power needs and, and certainly power all of down east Maine. Uh, but more importantly, um, it represents uh, investment that stays in the state. Uh, it creates uh, jobs and, and, and retains jobs that already exist around uh, the working waterfront area. Uh, and it's, uh, it's important for uh, continued economic development, uh, not, not just in Washington County, but um, statewide as well. Uh, our supply chain reaches 13 of Maine's. 16 counties. Um, we've spent probably uh, um, roughly $14 million in the state in the last uh, four years or so. A large percentage of that investment has occurred um, in, in Washington County. And as our, uh, our project efforts uh, continue to advance, um, that will only grow. This is just a start. Great. Uh, so, so it represents, you know, this, this type of investment uh, represents uh, a strong uh, investment in the main economy and, and keeps energy, energy dollars in Maine. Well, in the Cobbscook area, people have long thought about um, the tides as energy, um, going back to Roosevelt's time. Um, what's the particular technology that you're hoping to employ? How does it actually work? And where are you in the process? Well, it works simply um, it is uh, we're, we're uh, extracting energy from the uh, currents um, uh, in the water column so uh, the kinetic energy the movement of the water itself uh, and um, these currents turn uh, the foils of the turbines uh, the shaft um, uh, turns uh, a permanent magnet generator uh, 
and uh, we're, we're creating power to, to bring to shore. Uh, there's only one moving part. Uh, so, you know, over the long term, as this technology matures, it should, it should uh, be uh, um, very uh, stable in the marine environment and, and provide energy uh, over, the, over the long term. Where our project is, is uh, we're in the process of deploying uh, what, uh, will be the first uh, commercial project in, in the United States. And um, we recently had terms and conditions approved by the main PUC that set, sets up what would be the first power purchase agreement for Tidal Energy uh, in the United States. So a lot of what uh, has been in the media and what we've talked about over the last couple of years is starting to come to fruition. And this notion that um, Gail was talking about early in the show, that, that um, uh, we think of turbines in, often in dams, and that's a particular type of technology and has particular impacts um, on fisheries, for instance. Um, you're talking about uh, a turbine in a water column. Fish can swim around it. That's your hope. Well, yes, and I think some of the some of the data is showing that uh, you know Cobscook Bay is 42 square miles. Uh, we're in a channel that... Uh, you know, um, is uh, can be a mile wide to a mile and a half wide, and 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 some uh, parts, and and uh, we're putting, you know, a turbine that measures 100 feet by 17 feet, and and hope to have five of them in an area that's roughly 60 acres. So, uh, it it fits in quite well uh, with that large uh, marine environment. Um, I know we'll be talking with Will Hopkins from Cobbs Cook um, Bay Resource Center in a little while, but um, you've had some great connections with um, local fishermen um, as you've developed the concepts and as you've tried to figure out where to put the turbines and where not to put them. Tell us a little bit about those interactions. Well, there's a strong working waterfront community in both East Port and Lebec, and it's commercial fishing, it's aquaculture, it's port operations, um, and, and other uh, commercial uh, marine entities. And the, the people that work on the water really know uh, that area the best. And, and what we've sought to do is bring to that area um, a job creation opportunity and a, a different way of utilizing a marine environment that complements everything else that's going on and, and isn't displacing other aspects of the marine economy. And early in the process, we... Uh, developed relationships with different fishermen and, and worked through the Cobscook Bay Resource Center and, and got a sense of direction uh, around where these might fit in, how do we minimize conflicts, how do we create uh, a way of engaging long-term so that there's uh, a continued conversation going on. And where our project is in Cobscook Bay is, is, is the result uh, of that. I mean, it's an area that scientifically has shown that it has currents strong enough to uh, generate power from, uh, but it was also the area that the fishermen pointed us to as uh, an area that could be compatible with their activities. Mm. And and so w- did you avoid some mistakes by talking with fishermen, do you think? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean it's, it's the first thing you, it's the first thing any developer ought to be doing. Um, I think a strong um, characteristic of our company is that we when we came into town, we did everything we could to become part of the local econ- uh, local community. Uh, so our employees who work out of the uh, Eastport Operations Center are from that area. Uh, we've utilized a number of local contractors, uh, some of whom are fishermen as well. Uh, and uh, we've just 
uh, get a, a strong sense of direction from the community input in our project that has helped to uh, make it the, the success that it is. And, and as, as Gail and Teresa are doing their work, both on the, the water side, the, the ecological side, and the community side, I gather that um, there's an ongoing conversation um, with um, uh, Ocean Renewable Power about um, what this looks like in the long run and how to make adjustments if you need to. Well, these conversations will, will never end, Ron. Uh, this is an ongoing process. Uh, it's all about uh, main, you know, building a relationship, uh, maintaining the relationship, uh, establishing credibility, um, using the, the knowledge and resources that are there uh, in the local communities that, that, that help us become better at, at what we do and then ultimately, over the long term, have a sustainable use of the ocean environment that has uh, tidal energy operations in the mix, along with traditional fisheries and aquaculture and, and the other ways that the marine environment is used in that region of the state. Well, John, thanks so much for being with us. I hope uh, everything is, is going great, and we look forward to hearing from you again um, when things are actually producing power. That will be an interesting story in itself. It was great talking with you this morning, Ron, and and uh, hope to talk to you again sometime soon. Okay, thanks so much. That was John Furland of Ocean Renewable Power Company. Um, they're uh, doing a, a interesting and exciting project in Eastport, and our guests in the studio are, are looking at some of the biological, ecological, and community effects of developing tidal power in the community. They are uh, Gail Zedluski and Teresa Johnson of the School of Marine Sciences at the University of Maine. And uh, in, a, in a while, we'll open up our phone lines and ask you for your comments and, and questions. Um, as you've, uh, both Gail and, and uh, Teresa, if you've, you've worked with Ocean Renewable Power, um, do you have any advice for other companies that might be working in this arena? Um, how would you um, suggest that they go about this similar kind of work? It might not be tidal energy, it might be wind energy. How would you suggest that communities and companies engage with one another? Teresa, how would you, how would you take that question? Yeah, I think... Um I mean, I think th what the Ocean Renewable Power Company, like as John was mentioning, I think uh, they did a great job in starting with the community uh, in ways that other projects you don't see often, <laughs> as, as often, I would say. Uh, so I think that is definitely a place to start is to, you know, you know go to the community. You know, in our um, research, we heard a lot of stories of face-to-face -face conversations between the company, members of the company, and individual people in the community, whether they be f uh, fishermen or other, other folks, um, and people really appreciated that. And I think that's a, a place to build, start to build trust, understanding, um, and also making sure that, you know, it, from the company's perspective, that they're, that they're on the right track, you know, so that they're not um, making decisions that aren't going to work out for them in the long run. So I think um, following that was really helpful. Um, Gail, what would you add to that from the ecological side? Um, I think from the ecological side, it's really important to remember the regulators. So ORPC needed to get a permit to do, a license to do this work or to put a device in the water. And it really engaging them early and often as well in the discussion because it is a new alternative energy um, where collecting information is a little bit unique um, and working with the agencies so everybody's comfortable with the what the environmental monitoring will look like moving forward is really important. Mm. So it's, it's easy because the process is sometimes set up where um, you can just apply for things, and it's easy to just put in the paperwork, but ORPC also took the additional step of having multiple meetings with the agencies and engaging the university in that process 
to identify the right steps forward and working together and it built the trust and the you know the relationships now that we have among all of those different groups. Great, and one of the, the players in, in that process was uh, Will Hopkins of Cobbs Cook Bay Resource Center. Welcome back to Talk of the Towns, Will. Well, good morning, Ron. Thanks for having me on again. And, and how are things in Eastport this morning? Uh, it's a beautiful sunny day. The rain has moved on through and everything is quite fresh and green and, and makes you want to get out and start putting things in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, you've, you've been um, a kind of a, a key um, communicator in this process of, of, of exploring and now deploying uh, tidal energy um, in the Eastport Cosbrook Bay area. It's a kind of a, a two-way street um, that you've, you've helped fishermen kind of uh, work with them and um, but also think about their own future. Tell us a little bit about first about the, the resource center that you direct and then how you got involved in this tidal energy work. Well, we, we formed the Cubs Cook Bay Resource Center back in 1998 um, and have worked since then for sustainable community development that is based on the Bay's renewable resources. So um, with that as our, as our mission, you can imagine uh, we started working with the local fishermen quite early on. Um, about 12 years ago, um, fishermen asked the Resource Center and Maine Sea Grant to help them organize an, uh, an association so that when it came to issues particularly having to do with the scallop fishery, that um, Cubs Cook fishermen could go to Augusta, deal with the legislature, deal with the main DMR, um, and speak with one voice. And um, so we, we did, through a series of meetings, um, help get this Cubs Cook Bay Fishermen's Association formed, and they subsequently over the years have developed the number of of conservation measures that have um, really protected the scallop resource here in, in Cobbs Cook Bay. So um, um, at the same time, w we were very aware that, um, that Cobbs Cook Bay was an area that lots of, of university researchers from all over the country um, often come to do their research. Um, maybe they hire a, a, a fisherman to, to um, take them out on their boat or whatever. Um, do the work, go home, analyze the data, publish, and the report sits on a shelf in a library or in a data set, or maybe it's published. Um, but rarely did the folks here in Cobbs Cook Bay actually have the benefit of, of seeing the results of that. So that was one of the things we, we decided to do early on was that we would try to, um, just as we tried to help the fishermen organize so that they could speak with one voice, we've tried to um, elicit from people in the community what are some of the research priorities that are important to the folks that live here, and we've tried to um, then articulate those priorities to researchers from Orono and other, and other places. So when it came time to, um, for, for some of the early studies on whether uh, Maine had any, any good uh, uh, tidal power sites, um, we were involved in that right from the beginning. We, we had done a five-year study um, working with, with RNO researchers um, to, to map the currents in the bay um, previous to 2006. And so in 2006, when that all came um, about and uh, looking for the best places in Maine for tidal power sites, we were able to um, provide some of the data and, um, and help uh, that that early effort, and so that's when we met um, Chris Sauer, the the uh, the head of Ocean Renewable Power Company, and started this 
great long conversation. Mm. And and as you uh, as they get ready for actual deployment, um, what's the community of fishermen and and the community of of other residents? Um, we've heard a little bit from Teresa Johnson here in the studio, but what's your sense of of people's hopes and concerns about uh, the, the actual deployment stage? Well, well, I think the. Pretty much, um, uh, Teresa covered a lot of that. I think you know certainly there are people are concerned about the impact on the environment, on whether these things are going to, in some manner, um, you know, do damage to fish or marine mammals, or um, extract so much energy from the system that it's going to function in a way different um, than it than it normally does. Um, and certainly, there's a there's a big concern that um, if if the project is successful, is that going to mean that there's going to be a huge rollout of, of dozens or hundreds of devices um, to an extent that might dislodge or displace um, fishing effort? So um, that's why we, we put, on, uh, put a, a real effort on early. When, when um, ORPC first came to town, we, we tried to get him, uh, Chris Sauer, um, together with with uh, uh, leaders of the Fishermen's Association, very early on, and as Teresa said, it's all about um, building relationships and getting to know who you can trust over an extended period of time. And um, I have to say that both the fishermen and ORPC have worked very, very hard over the last several years to maintain those relationships and to really um, understand and, and hear what each other were saying. And if you, if you if you were to um, advise, and I don't I, I don't think that's a role you take on, but um, if you were to advise other communities about how to go about this kind of work, any key nuggets that uh, that uh, you look back over the last uh, several years and say these are the things that really made made a difference in getting things to the, this stage. Well, from the developer point of view, I, I think coming to town with a a willingness to um, to listen to the local expertise. No, as um, as John Furlan said, nobody knows what's going on in the waters of Cobscook Bay better than than the fishermen and the and the fish farmers and the and um, and the pilots um, who make their living on this water. So, um, for a developer to come to town um, and do what some developers have done and and sort of dumped a full blown, fully developed project on the community and said, "This is what we're going to do and and uh, and this is how we're going to sell this great idea to you." Um, that doesn't work so well. But to do what ORPC has done and say, listen, we think that you have this amazing resource and we've got a technology. You know what the environment is. You know what, how the bay works. Um, if you think this is a way that um, you and your, your next generation can, can make a living, um, perhaps we can, we can develop this into, and turn it into a commercially viable project that will really benefit the community. And I think the other thing, Will, and I can kind of see this as an observer, what your community has is a result of your work to build the capacity of people to talk about things and speak with um, a common voice. And if communities don't have that sense of, of common voice, they're going to be struggling. So congratulations on that hard work. Well, I thank you, and you, I know you know it's hard work. And I, I think the, the, the key of the, whole, of the whole piece is that um, conflict is part of everyday life, and usually we all avoid it as much as possible. And from my point of view, basically when we avoid it, we sort of 
put each other in different categories and stay clear of the ones that, that we don't agree with. And what we've tried to do at the Resource Center is we've tried to um, create a safe and trusted process where people can um, possibly disagree in a safe and trusted manner, um, where they know that at the end of that meeting, they will all get up and walk out the door, and they probably will have learned something from each other, and they will probably um, know that, that their concerns were really heard, that they were registered. That's great, Will. Thanks so much for being with us and helping us with this story. Take care. Well, thanks for having me on, on the air again today. Great. Will Hopkins of the Cobbs Cook Bay Resource Center. And now it's your turn. If you've got comments or questions or your own experience to share as we talk about engaging communities around tidal energy, it's your turn. 1-866-625-9378. We'll put you into our studios, and we'd be happy to take your call. That's, again, 1-866-625-9378. Teresa, I'll, I'll come back to you. Have you worked in communities where the fishermen and others haven't spoken with one voice, where there isn't this sense of, oh, we can come out of this together? Have, do you have a sense of what's different in Cobbs Cook Bay from, than perhaps some other communities? Um, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, like you said, I think they have a history of working together. I think they're, um, I think also that there's a, some, uh, there's a community there, right? There's so that, so that they're, they have this shared understanding of what's important. Um, they shared concern about the future, right? So they, they together they want to think about moving forward. So they are more likely to you know, come together and talk about, like as Will was, was talking about. Um, I think that that's important. Um, I think an interesting aspect of Cobbsquick Bay that's maybe unique is that, um, as you uh, alluded to, they have a long history of thinking about tidal power in, in a different form. But you know, going back to Roosevelt, they had big plans to uh, to dam the bay and produce um, energy, and it was going to be wonderful, right? It was they had, they had savior, be, right? Right, right. It was going to, to 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 be a big thing, right? And it was gonna would have had significant environmental impacts. Would have been very different today if they had you know done that. So I think, um, and they think about the jobs, and they think you know a lot of folks in the community that we talk to remember um, those times and remember that they sort of have that. So it's not like a community that's never had that in its memory, mm. right? So I think, um, and, and, and also the a- aspect that it is a very much a working, as John Furlan was talking, a working waterfront that's, you know, they have all this expertise and it's a, um, it's a community that takes advantage of its natural resources and um, its working waterfront. Mm. So I think it, and fitting that in, right. in, in a different place, it'd be harder, right? You can imagine different communities, the types of people that live there or the, you know, um, the kind of economic development that they have in other places may not lend themselves to that. Great. I think we have a caller, but I'll, I'll remind our listeners they can participate as well. Give us a call at one 625 9378 as we talk about tidal energy, um, its possibilities in Maine. But we have a caller on the line. If you'd give us your first name and the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Uh, my name is Jane. I live in Belfast. Um, my question is... What effect, if any, has the turbine that's been there for quite a while had on the fishing? Great question. Yeah. We'll keep you on the line and see if Gail, um, I guess, Gail, there hasn't been a, a form of, um, you know, a large scale, but has there been experimental turbines? Do we have some sense of, of how fish react with, with the turbines that are being put in the water now? So there was, ORPC did test a device, and that was actually at the, um, in the same region where they'll be deploying a, a device. And 
that was in the water for about a year, and they were doing a lot of work on understanding the turbine itself and how it functioned and how it would react to the environment that it was in. And um, and we, fortunately, were able to also look at how fish interacted with the device. And we used some fancy cameras to see um, interactions both day and night of the fish that were in the Cobscook region. And we did um, see fish interact with the device. We didn't have equipment to look at how many fish might have avoided the device. That's what we're moving into as we as they put the larger device in the water. Um, we did see f- small fish move into and through the device, and it it actually it's important to mention. And I I wish I should have asked John this question because um, the device that they're deploying and the one that was tested has a relatively low rotational speed compared to... So this is not to, like a blender. Right, it's not <laughs> a blender and it's very different from if any if people are familiar with wind turbines, the, t- the speed of the tip is very fast um, and the, the rotational speed of the ORPC turbine is relatively slow. So the fish that we saw actually moving into the device, we saw them disoriented on the other side but continued to move. And they were primarily small fish um, under 10 centimeters, which would be, oh, I can't do my conversion in my head. Um, and the lar- we didn't see a lot of interaction of larger fish, which could indicate that they were able to avoid it ahead of time. But we'll certainly be looking at that as we move forward. The other thing that was different about that device is it was deployed right at the surface of the water column. The one that they're deploying now and moving into the future is at the bottom. So we'll have different fish species that may interact um, and may actually behave differently from the ones that we saw during the test. Great. Uh, Jane, a further question or follow-up? Um, uh, there, well, there is going to be, there is a newer, larger turbine. That's has, the, that been, has that been put in? No, it has not. That's what they're getting ready to do now. And then um, the ongoing monitoring will take place, as I understand it, to kind of look at um, the effects. Gail? Right. So we, so what we've done is we've documented what happens at that site where they'll be putting in that device without, ahead of time without the time. turbine in place. And so we know generally where fish should be <laughs> in that site uh, at different times of the year, how many should be there, and how much... Um, where they should be in the water column. And now we'll do the same thing when the device is in the water and see how that differs from what we saw before. Thank Jane? you so much. Okay. Sure. Thanks for your question from Belfast this morning. Give us a call if you've got some comments or you, perhaps your experience with um, Tidal Energy, one 625 9378 Let's begin to think about um, r- wrapping up. Gail, you've already talked about this notion of baseline data, you know, studying it before and then looking at it. Um, for what's the, what's the uh, uh, procedure for doing this? Is, is there funding in place for a long-term study or a short-term study? How does that work? Um, so right now, we, I already mentioned we have this Department of Energy money that allowed us to do the baseline data collection. And we, working with ORPC, have money also from Department of Energy to move forward at least for the next few years to collect data as the, when the device goes in the water. Um, and that's mostly, and I, I already mentioned at the beginning that I'm a fish biologist, so I'm focusing very much on fish, but ORPC is also monitoring things like the benthic environment right around the device with other people. Um, they're also um, assessing marine mammals. So there aren't uh, large whales that move through Cobscook Bay, but there are um, seals 
that they will be monitoring to look at marine mammal interactions with the device. Um, and they've also been monitoring um, bird populations in the area. And the other thing that um, coming back to the physical environment, the turbine could potentially um, produce noise. And so there's monitoring of that as well as the dynamics of the flow around the device. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot going on that will continue, at least for the first few years that the devices are in the water. Great. We have another call. If you'd give us your first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, go, uh, go ahead. This is Michael from Stonington. And uh, I'd just like to say uh, kudos to this whole group. Um, I, I've long felt that of all the renewable energy um, sources, that this is a, a really a no-brainer. You know, wind only works when it wind blows, and sun only, solar only works when the sun shines. But when the tides stop coming and going, none of us will have anything to worry about. And, um, uh, and you, you know, as far as I'm not a biologist, but I'm, but I'm an, an experienced sailor, and I've, I've observed a lot over the decades. And um, I, I think most animals demonstrate, um, if not intelligence, intuitive behavior that that for the most part allows them to, to avoid a lot of man-made dangers. I mean, those of us who have been at sea have watched dolphins, porpoise, shooting out of the bow wave of freighters moving at 15, 20 knots and just playing, and they don't get run over. They don't, um, they don't get fouled in the propellers in general. And So anyway, I, I think this is a fantastic um, development. I, I really hope that other communities catch on, and, and I hope that you press forward and are an, are an inspiration to... Um, other outfits because I think this is the real future of, um, of renewable energy, especially in parts of the world uh, like here where we have decent ties. So, yeah, great show and a great subject. Thanks Th a lot. Thank you, Michael, for your call. We probably have time for one more short call. If you've got a question or comment for our guest um, in the studio, one 625 or locally, 469-0500. Um, uh, Gail, we were talking about, uh, I mean, uh, Teresa, we were talking about what's the longer-term impact or long-term study. What's the, nation, uh, the notion of, on the shore side, the community side? What would you hope to kind of monitor over time? Monitor over time. Um, good question. I... I, I think that um, so I think so I think these places are dynamic, right? So I, I think one of the I, I think we'll will mention the idea that what happens when we get a lot of uh, build up, you know, right? So you know, right now they're testing one, you know, what what's moving forward? What are the long longer term social and, and, and economic impacts that more turbines may may have? So I think monitoring um, things like that, monitoring changes in fishermen's behavior. Do they um, diversify their fisheries? Do they uh, have to find alternative, you know, economic uh, employment. So monitoring those kinds of things, I think, are important. And just kind of, and I think, part of, related to that, just continuing this, the engagement of um, what are their concerns, how are their concerns changing, um, how do we engage them, and, and, and then, as we talked about before, making sure that we go back to the community as we're doing our research, um, you know, let them know what's happening, what we're finding, and then get, you know, sort of keep that loop Great. going, I think. Great. We've got time for one short phone call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, I'm calling from Rockport, Maine. I was just curious if um, anyone had done any numbers on uh, the cost per kilowatt, um, the maintenance schedule of these things, how much, how much is, how many dollars per kilowatt, basically, and how, how often and how much is, how, how much time it's going to take and how much money, therefore. That's a great question. 
great question. Thanks, and we'll see what answers we've got. But we would recommend that you you look for um, a, a website uh, called Ocean Renewable Power Company, um, based here in Maine, uh, especially in Eastport. And um, if we can't answer your question, you may be able to find an answer um, um, online that way. But Gail, um, any response to how much um, invested and how much return? You know, on these re- new renewable power um, developments, it's it's a really high investment in the short term, in the near term. And I know that John definitely would be able to answer this question. But as he mentioned, he's they're only now getting into this agreement with the PUC, so the dollar per kilowatt is hard for me. And I, maybe it's still proprietary. I have no idea. Mm. So um, I'm sure they could answer that question. But definitely. For right now, in these de- research and development phases, it's it's very costly to put this one device in the water. But of course, as a company, that's where they want to make sure they can bring those costs down and make it worthwhile to the to the people. Right. Well, let's wrap up with with the two of you. Um, what are your hopes um, specifically for this this research, this project as it goes forward? Gail, what what, what are you hoping to learn as as the project goes forward? Wow. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I became involved with this because I was very excited as a biologist to be able to interact with engineers and be able to, just exactly what you said, communicate with them, build a relationship so that I could honestly say to them, this is having such and such an impact um, and we need to do something about that. And so I really feel like we've been able to build a great relationship and be able to interact that way and, and work with the regulatory agencies so we can all make very informed decisions as we move forward. And it's been incredibly um, rewarding to meet the fishermen in the community and be able to put their thoughts into that discussion as well. And uh, Teresa, what are your hopes as you continue this work? Yeah, I think um, we just kind of started uh, the morning talking about balance. You know, I think that's uh, my hope is that we do find a good balance between uh, these various aspects of, of tidal power, the environmental, the, the development aspects, the, the human uh, and social aspects. I think that's something that I'm hopeful about, that because we've developed these relationships and building trust among the researchers and the company, the community, um, that we'll be able to move forward in a balanced way. That's mm. what I hope. That's great. Well, thanks for both of you for being with us this morning to help us um, kind of tease this story apart and then kind of put it back together. Mm-hmm. That's a, a great accomplishment. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. And we want to thank all of our um, listeners and supporters who've participated in the uh, campaign to um, restore our transmitter. So that's going to happen in July and we're delighted with, with that news. Uh, join us on this 10th, uh, from 10 to 11 on the 2nd and 4th Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Koranak on a Balnane House Highland music recording. Thanks once again to our guests, Teresa Johnson and Gail Zidluski of the School of Marine Sciences at the University of Maine. We heard a uh, recorded interview with David Hart, who's the director of the in, uh, Mitchell Environmental and Watershed Research Center at there, and, and John Furland of Ocean Renewable Power, and Will Hopkins of Cobbs Cook Bay uh, Resource Center in Eastport. Thanks to our underwriters, especially at Maine Community Foundation. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.
Community Radio is based partly on the principle